I'm Dr. Simon Clark, a physicist and science communicator. And I'm Dr. Shanice O'Mara, a mechanical engineer and broadcaster. We cannot meet net zero targets without changing our diet. So says Susan Jebb, a professor of diet and population health at the University of Oxford. Thanks to intensive farming, endless supermarkets and a global supply chain, we've become used to being able to eat meat every day. Buy avocados from distant lands and enjoy a mango any day of the week. And with food systems contributing roughly 30% of global greenhouse gas emissions and over 50% of these emissions relating to livestock farming, do we truly understand the impact our choices are making? And is there a way to engineer our food to be better? Welcome to Mission Responsible. So, Shinny, it's not well known, but Alexander Fleming originally wrote James Bond, not as a spy, but as a chef. The books all actually had completely different titles. Really? Yeah. Fry Another Day? The Man with the Golden Bun? Seriously? You only sieve twice? For your pies only? Absolutely not. He had a licence to grill. Coming up on this week's episode... Got a licence to grill. To grill. I think that the best description I've heard, and it's kind of what popped into my head the first time I tried, is clean ocean, um, if that resonates at all. There is a note on the door to this lab that says, take a break and remove yourself from the area if you begin to feel irritation. When you put it that way, you do make it sound very appetising. So, Shinny, as a self-declared omnivore, have you tried any meat substitutes? Have they convinced you to trade your steaks for soybeans? The thing is, I try everything and anything. Hmm. So I'm, I'm open to be convinced, very open, because I am extremely aware of the challenges we face in the future with trying to feed a global population. What's the strangest meat that you've had? Have you had like crocodile or ostrich? I have actually. Both of those? Yeah. How do you rate them? So I actually, I'm now feeling a bit self-conscious sitting in front of you talking about the types of meat that I have eaten. I mean, because I used to eat meat. I've been vegetarian for over 10 years. Um, I did it for Lent one year and then I just kept going. And then I tried veganuary in about 2020, I think, to put my cards on the table, I'm vegan probably 95% of the time. confession. Confession time. Well, for example, I was on holiday recently. I was on the British seaside. I had an ice cream because I'm not going to deny myself that pleasure. Like, I thought that was that. I really enjoyed it because it was such a special treat. For me, it's a a climate-related thing. It's, It's limiting. It's entirely related to limiting my carbon footprint. There is the aspect of I like knowing that nothing had to die for me to eat a meal. Have you done all the calculations to work out how you've reduced your carbon footprint? I did once, but it's so difficult to do it based on what I've personally eaten or what I've well, not eaten, I guess. Um, mm. It's a, it's at the order of a couple of tons of CO two per year because I don't fly and I'm vegan. It uh, has its advantages. Time to get to the meat of this week's episode. I thought you were vegan. Good point. Time to get to the tofu of this week's episode. Okay, I'll just boot up the secret quantum server and login accepted. Access granted. Welcome, agents. This week, your mission, should you decide to accept it, is to discover how responsible engineering can help grow the food of the future. Let me guess. 
It's going to be all cooked by an AI chef called Chat BLT. That'd be ridiculous. I forgot you're vegan. It couldn't possibly be a BLT. Agent Samara, your objective is to locate and interview a company creating sushi-grade seafood without growing any fish. I am so excited for this story. I hope you've got your 25-meter pool certification. What, I'm going to have to swim for it? Agent Clark, your mission is to find out how vertical farms can use audio to grow food faster. Sounds like you're going to have to climb a lot of stairs, Simon. I'll get my ladder. Briefing complete. Good luck, agents. This message will self-destruct in five, four... Before you go, any chance we can go for lunch at that new... Looks like it's a garage meal deal again. Right, well, while Simon heads off on a horizontal train to find a vertical farm, I've been using my advanced spy skills to get Chris in the research department to tell me who I need to speak to. Apparently, there are plenty of organisations driving the food engineering revolution, from Crop Protect, a knowledge exchange system helping farmers with pest and disease management, through to the Robo Royale project at Durham University, which aims to use robot bees to help queens with their egg laying. But when it comes to creating seafood without growing any fish, I'm told it's the California-based wild type I need to speak to. Luckily, I'd been able to obtain a phone number for Brittany Samble, their Vice President of Operations. Hologram programs activated. Looks like Shinny got caught in the rain for this mission. Can you hear me? So she ended up recording this interview from her classified agent, Rover, a.k.a. her car. Brittany, it's fantastic to be speaking with you over there on the West Coast. Yes, same here. Great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. And yes, we are located in San Francisco. Can you tell me what Wild Type does and what's your major mission? Of course, yes. So we are a cell-cultivated seafood company. And so what that means is we are producing um, salmon specifically right now as our first product outside of the fish. So I know it sounds like a little futuristic, but we are you know, taking real salmon cells and being able to, to reproduce those to produce delicious, clean sushi products that we are hoping to get out into the world uh, in the near future. And it's all down to cellular agriculture. Can you explain to me what cellular agriculture is? Yes, happy to. So cellular agriculture as an industry in the food realm is is relatively new, is very new, but the science has been around for a long time. So even as early as the 19th century, doctors and scientists have been using this technology for things like organ transplants and vaccine development. And that's actually how um, our company um, inspiration was developed through work that one of our uh, co-founders did as a cardiologist uh, working in stem cell research. And so this technology allows us to actually take fish cells 
and reproduce them in a way that allows us to make clean products. Uh, And when I say clean, I mean free of the things we don't want. So free of things like mercury or heavy metals and even microplastics that's unfortunately so prevalent in our seafood today. And we're able to produce that without needing to use more than the the one fish who who donated, uh, uh, you know, its cells to us to, to start this process. So basically, to try to simplify it, it's Similar, not dissimilar from what you would imagine if you go to a brewery and you see, you know, these big stainless steel tanks that are used in brewery production. It's very similar for cellular agriculture where, you know, we can start with a very small number of cells and be able to give them nutrients uh, just as, as a fish would, would need to, to grow and put those into these tanks and be able to actually reproduce, you know, outside of, outside of a fish. It's almost like Lego with biological cells. Oh, interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way, but (laughs) yeah. Well, what I'm dying to know is what it tastes like. I think that the best description I've heard, and it's kind of what popped into my head the first time I tried is clean ocean, um, if that resonates at all. But it's, it's a very clean and uh, more mild flavor, but it's it's delicious. And I think, you know, we're, we're our own worst critics sometimes. I think we see all the possibilities to make it even better, but we've been fortunate to be able to have some really top-notch sushi chefs and other uh, seafood kind of experts in the culinary world taste our product. And, and we've, we've had really amazing feedback. Food systems contribute roughly 30% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And even with all this food, many of us still don't have healthy diets. The UK spends billions of pounds every year treating diet-related illnesses and the growing problem of obesity. And sorry, it's like absolutely chucking it down with rain here. I can see it and hear it. Oh, my goodness. Thunderstorm, of course. (laughs) Oh, no. So Wild Type is very ambitious. How close and realistic are those goals? Yeah, I think that it's a very focused effort on on a few fronts. Uh, One of those is just being able to scale. You know, we want to make an impact, as you said, and we can't do that unless we're able to produce more of this product. And so one of the things that my team is especially focused on is being able to design and build the infrastructure and the facilities we need to be able to to scale this product. And so we're really excited. We're actually starting production in our uh, first pilot scale facility in San Francisco, where, you know, we're going to be moving from hundreds of liters scale of bioreactor capacity to thousands of liters of scales, similar to conventional animal agriculture, the economics revolve around feed conversion ratios and being able to produce as much as you can with as little input as possible and the lowest cost inputs. And so this industry has relied on really pharmaceutical grade components for uh, those nutrients I talked about that the cells need to grow. And so those are right now all pharmaceutical grade and therefore very expensive. And so another thing that uh, you know we've been focusing on at WildType and again, our peer companies as well within the industry is being able to convert away from pharmaceutical grade inputs and get more to food grade, which you know is going to help us get to price parity with conventional products. But you know, in those two things go hand in hand. 
the scale aspect, of course, is also a, an important component to bringing costs down. So sustainability is another one of your aims or goals there at Wildtype. And it's also an extremely trending buzzword, especially in the world of engineering. Um, how is cellular agriculture sustainable? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. So I think, you know, we start at looking at how conventional seafood in our case, right, is produced. And unfortunately, industrial fishing is incredibly, I'm going to say carbon intensive. And so one fact that is kind of stuck in, in my mind is that the global industrial fishing industry produces in a year as much or more emissions as the global airline industry. And so you know, being able to produce this alternate source of seafood that, you know, certainly not going to eliminate industrial fishing or or conventional farming of, of seafood. But we are very confident that, you know, as we continue to scale and optimize that we're going to be able to significantly reduce both the water and carbon usage through things like reclaiming some of our media, recycling media, which is the that nutrient solution that I was talking about earlier that, that our cells grow in. On the whole, I think if you look at what the reality is of our conventional seafood industry and you know what it takes to get that product to our plates and what the opportunity is with uh, cellular agriculture and being able to build these facilities with sustainability in mind, both from how they're powered, how we use water. There's just a, a lot of opportunity and a lot of promise for this, this industry. Our eating habits and the way we supply that demand is one of the biggest causes of climate change and environmental damage, responsible for nearly 70% of biodiversity loss around the world. In the UK alone, the food industry slaughters approximately 1 billion animals every year. So a more sustainable salmon, sushi grade, tastes like it's from a clean ocean. I mean, there's not much to not love. What do you think is the reaction because uh, there's always some sort of resistance to meat alternatives. Yeah, I think we have a lot to learn still um, about that because unfortunately it's been difficult with the very small quantities that we can produce today to be able to get this out to more people and get more feedback and, and understand how consumers are going to think about it. So we're really looking forward to being able to get this product out into the world and, and sell once we have FDA approval. So that's uh, something we've been working with FDA on for quite a while now. And, and you know, we think we're in the final rounds of kind of getting to that point of regulatory approval so that we can sell and, and get the feedback that, that we were looking for from consumers. But I think there's just a lot of education that needs to happen. I think, you know, it's it's not intuitive when people hear cellular agriculture, right? You know, what that means and what cell cultivated products are and how they're different from plant-based. And so I think we just as an industry, you know, do have a lot of work to do to, to help educate consumers. But I think for the people who have been able to taste our product, we've had really amazing feedback and even had expectant mothers who have said, you know, they just love sushi and they miss being able to to eat sushi and that this is actually something that they they would be able to, to eat. And I know from my own experiences of missing sushi during pregnancy um, that I would have loved to have been able to, to go out and, and eat some wild type salmon. So that's really exciting. We've had people who have, you know, moved away from consuming seafood for one reason or the other around sustainability or animal welfare and share 
clear that this is something that they would be open to eating. And so it's pretty exciting to think about like opening up this amazing food to people who who aren't able to or have chosen not to eat it because of, you know, some of the challenges that are out there with conventional seafood. I'm looking forward to watching this space and revisiting you hopefully sometime in the future to, to actually try some. So thank you so much. Yeah, we would love to have you. If you're in uh, San Francisco at any point, let me know and we'll, we'll have you in for a tasting and, and a tour of our pilot plant. Data transfer complete. Commence system shutdown. So it seems like Wildtype may be onto something when it comes to engineering our food to be better. I think the only way to truly appreciate this information, though, is to immediately visit the nearest sushi restaurant and sample their most expensive platter. It's a tough life being a spy. I wonder if Simon's going to eat anything on his mission. Let's face it, I like food. You like food. We all like food. But food requires farming be it animals or plants, and farms require land, water, and, well, lots of labour and machinery. So what happens when you take those ingredients and apply some good old-fashioned science and engineering? So we're here in a small industrial estate in Bristol, and in front of me there's actually a lot of bikes, huge lot of bike racks, and behind them a relatively unassuming red brick building with a large friendly blue door. And if I um Hi! Hi! Hi. Good morning! Nice to meet you. India? Yes. India, hi. Jack, Jack. Nice to meet you. Okay, so we are in Let Us Grow HQ, as you've helpfully labelled on the wall. <laughs> I'm here just outside Bristol, where our spy satellites have pinpointed the location of a leading farm tech company. The giveaway indicators, greenhouses, polytunnels, and a big sign saying leading farm tech company. So hi, uh, I'm India Langley. I'm Food Systems Research and PR Lead uh, at Let Us Grow. So I deal with a lot of uh, the academic collaborations, like with AgriFood for Net Zero. Hi, I'm Jack. I'm one of the co-founders here. Uh, full title Chief Scientific Officer. So I help run a lot of our kind of strategic R&D projects and work with our clients to optimize our, our systems. Right, where should we go? Should we take you straight to the farm? Yes, please. When my producer first told me I was going to visit a vertical farm, my first thought was, yeah, and pigs fly. So we're going to the farm through an office space, which actually does have a lot of greenery in. It's very nice. Except in a vertical farm, they have to. We, we love our plants here, whether we're, we're growing them or just maintaining them. <laughs> a lot of plants, a lot of whiteboards. At its most basic, vertical farming is the growing of crops in stacked layers. But it's when you add in carefully controlled environments and soilless farming techniques that the magic really starts to happen. Aha, right. So this is, uh, unlike any farm I've seen before, I grew up quite near farms, so this is a bit different. Uh, we've got a whole load of machinery, uh, there's control panels, there's pipe works, there's, well, what are we looking at? Well, show you, what you're looking at here is a irrigation network. So you'd see more of these in a normal greenhouse, maybe even a polytunnel, and definitely in an indoor farm, which is what, what this is in a small light industrial warehouse unit in Bristol. Um, you can see here you've got a lot of the power control and a lot of the water required to operate the grow rooms that, we've, that we're going to walk into in a sec. So. Right, so there are insulated tanks here and there's a bunch of pipework connecting them to 
is that a sealed off room within yeah, there? It's basically a big industrial fridge. Um, so it's, we use this to trial our technology uh, throughout the year, so through winter, which is very helpful when never, no one's growing. And similarly, we basically route all the water, clean it outside, get all the kind of electricity box out, well, in a, in a kind of a power control box outside, that gets rooted into the chamber that we're going to go into in a sec, which is all kind of clean and growing ready. So we try and keep as much machinery outside as we can. So what we're looking at basically are the guts of keeping an environment as stable as possible exactly. and suitable for growing plants. Very good metaphor. Okay, let's go in the guts. Yeah. So we're going through a white corridor now, and what actually now looks like a clean room for a lab. Yeah, so what we're going to have to do here is, is take off uh, our shoes, pop on some lab coats, some wellies, and clean our hands as well. So this is one of the things that we do to make sure uh, that it's a really clean and controlled space so we're not letting any pests or disease into the farm. This is the first lab clean room I've seen where there are wellies that you put on rather than, you know, lab shoes. This is definitely like a fusion of farming and, and you know, lab work. <laughs> These days, when people talk about vertical farming, they often include the words aeroponics, hydroponics, and aquaponics. I immediately feel like I'm in that scene in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory where they go into the TV room. (laughs) (laughs) According to my spy sources, aka our researcher Chris, hydroponics is the technique of growing plants in liquid rather than soil. So we're all washing our hands before going in. Aeroponics is growing the plants in air rather than liquid, and aquaponics are a popular rock band from Wales. Wait, that can't be right. There is actually a note here. There is a note on the door to this lab that says, take a break and remove yourself from the area if you begin to feel irritation. Apparently that's to do with aerosols, but I think that's just good advice in general. (laughs) So first of all, we're in a clean white space. The smell is really uh, kind of musty. It, feel, it feels yeah, earthy and alive. It's basil. That's basil? That's a basil smell. Ah. So there's been basil harvesting. In fact, I think, oh, no, that one's not basil. Oh, no, that is basil. That's chilies. Yes, I can see chilies actually on top. There are some chili fruit. Is that what you call a chili? Yeah, chilies, chilies are a fruit. They are a fruit. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they've got seeds inside. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, lots of greenery down here, lots of basil with uh, exposed roots that are sitting very happily in some water. And what else are we looking at? This is, uh, this is a sort of multifunctional space. So this is uh, often used as a lab. So we do a lot of our experimentation in here. Um, we also do a lot of the harvesting, a lot of the prep work for all of the plants. Um, so we'll be doing our sowing, maybe seed soaking, etc., in there before it moves into the germination room uh, and then harvesting the plants when they're ready. We, uh, we will conduct most of our operations in here. Uh, and then the growing takes place in those climate controlled rooms I mentioned earlier. Should we go and have a look at them? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, wow. As I entered the aeroponics lab, I was immediately struck by how it would make a great filming location for the new spy script I was writing. A view to a dill. So we have now passed into a Bond villain lair uh, with a sliding door with a uh, what I thought was tinted glass, but it's not. It is actually just like a, a lilac-y pink shade in here. I assume that the colour is to optimise the growth of the plants. Yeah, absolutely. So the reason that plants, you see them as green is because they're reflecting green light, which means that they can't absorb it for photosynthesis. So having the red and blue spectrums uh, only is actually much more effective for plant growth. So you, you do have to see better various different light spectrums in horticulture. Some of them will be full spectrum, which will appear white, um, but we use mostly red and blue. 
we're standing in this room which has racks and racks. It almost looks like a server room, but for plants. On the left, we've got some seedlings, which are growing in soil. Then there's some plants. They're actually not growing oh, in not soil. They're not growing in soil. What is no, that? Nothing, nothing you see in here is growing in soil. Um, so this is growing on... Um, I think this is a cocoa fiber matting. Um, so we've, we've explored quite a lot of different growing mediums over the years. We've used cocoa fiber, we've used recycled fabrics, we've used jutes, we've used all sorts of things. Um, but actually nothing in here grows in soil. Um, and what that does is it holds the plant roots in place um, so that we can irrigate them with a mist. So if you come just around here in a second, we can actually show you the mist that the plants are growing in. Ah, Jack, right. do you want to lift up one of the, um, right. the things and talk a little bit about so if you look behind you, what you'll see here is water vaporized into an aerosol around the plant roots. I'll just lift one of these plants up just to show you. You effectively have the roots hanging down from the bottom of this plant. And actually what you find is that when you have plants hanging in oxygen with the water surrounding them, they have much greater access to basically that oxygen, a bit like an aerated soil, and they can grow a lot uh, more effectively as a result. So that's why we create that mist around plant roots. Now, what we tend to do as products is we'll take that um, kind of technology of generating that mist and we will embed it in these kind of plastic trays you can see in front of you. These trays will either be fixed into an into a indoor room, like a container, uh, but at larger scale, we really focus on the greenhouse market and making these benches roll around. So this, this activity doesn't have to happen in such tightly controlled conditions. You're doing this for development. Exactly. Exactly. This is pretty much a lab. So we're, we're using this to develop the technology to grow as many different crops as we want to, as we want to try out. Um, and from here, we've been able to grow from what's a very small little business in, in Bristol in the UK to being able to supply the kind of very large glass houses you see in the UK and the rest of the world, primarily by making, as I said, these benches roll around and be automatable. Arguably, the first example of a vertical farm was the legendary Hanging Gardens of Babylon, supposedly built in 600 BC. But like most great engineering ideas, it took a while to realise its true potential. In 1999, Professor Dixon de Pommier at Columbia University and his students developed the idea more formally, culminating in him telling talk show Stephen Colbert about it in 2008. Smart work, and a great way to get out of having to write those long reports. So the effect is rather like a piece of modern art, you know, this is, this is really fine-tuning stuff. And if I lift up one of these uh, uh, pieces of plastic underneath, it's like uh, dry ice, basically. Yeah. Um, it, it's like being at a fancy cocktail bar. Yeah. So it's funny that you use the term fine-tuning. So the way that we make this technology is actually runs through sound. Um, so what we're essentially doing is we are shaking the water and fertilizer at very, very high frequencies, at ultrasonic frequencies, until it disperses into a fine mist. Um, and that's how we're irrigating the roots. So aeroponics is not something that we developed ourselves. It has been around since around the 1980s. But it's something that, even though it has all of these benefits of increasing growth rates, etc., hasn't been able to be applied very, at very large scales for a really long time because it used to be done with lots of tiny nozzles. And when you fire through lots of tiny nozzles, you have lots of complicated things around clogging and breaking and systems maintenance and all of that, which has stopped it from scaling up. But by, instead of doing that, shaking the water um, with ultrasonic frequencies, we've been able to get rid of all of that system complexity, uh, which means that we can scale it up into these hectare-sized greenhouses. And you can actually see that process happening. One of these holes is open. There isn't a plant in it. And you can see the water bubbling up 
through it, like it's being uh, shaken. I, I thought that was my eyes playing a trick on me earlier when I lifted up the, uh, the plastic, but it really is kind of bubbling, almost like it's, a, it's, it's a, not a hot tub, it's a temperate tub. Imagine a speaker in a bathtub. Amazing. Well, why are we sensible? If we go through to the next room, we've got a, a few plants growing a bit more. Sensing an opportunity to strike, I asked a piercing question. Forgive me if this is a stupid question, but plants seem to grow perfectly fine outdoors without the need for the tightly controlled conditions and the white rooms and the white boots. So why go to all of this bother? Yeah, that's a really good question. And you're completely right. A lot of plants do grow really well outside. Um, but what we're seeing is a lot of uh, sort of climactic issues as climate change is sort of progressing. We're seeing greater flooding, uh, more heat waves, which make it a lot more unpredictable and a lot more difficult to grow outside in a lot of different scenarios. Uh, so one of the reasons to move some production, absolutely not all production inside, is it protects your food security. Um, and it can also increase very, very significantly the amount of crops that you're able to grow on a given level. Uh, land patch. Um, so this isn't just when you're doing it um, vertically, greenhouses are the same as well. So if you look at the Netherlands, for example, even though they're a very tiny country, they're one of the second largest food exporters globally. And one of the reasons for this is their heavy investment in things like greenhouses and precision agriculture and agricultural technology in general. So if we're able to sort of maximize the efficiency of what we're growing and sort of bring that indoors, that can really help. Um, and there are some other environmental benefits as well as you can protect things from going out into the environment. So you're not seeing fertilizers go into natural waterways. You're seeing less trees cut down to make space for that land, etc., etc. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for showing me around. I feel like I've learned an awful lot about this technology. Yeah, it's been a really fun tour. Thank you so much for coming and asking all those interesting questions. Yeah, just for coming. Mission complete. Please evacuate immediately. So, Chinny, we're now back at Mission Responsible HQ. What are your thoughts on eating artificially grown food? I find it really fascinating. Yeah? Yeah. This idea that we are creating the nutrients we need. Well, it's really actually the idea that we are playing Mother Nature. Yeah. We have this idea of food as being something that comes from yeah, the natural world. Mm. And, you know, it hasn't been natural the way that we grow food for decades, if not centuries, right? Yeah. So would you like to try some of the sushi that they were making? Absolutely. I really would love to try it. I think I'm also very allured by the fact that I would have to go to California to try it. <laughs> it's not all about the food. It's about the setting and the fact that you have to travel to a very nice other part of the world <laughs> yeah. to eat it. How about you, Simon? Are you tempted to try anything? that you've seen growing vertically? Coming away from the trip, I definitely saw vertical farming being taken to the next level. And then the level above that. And then the level above that. Very clever. But the thing about vertical farming is it uses so much less space horizontally, right? Like you need less area to grow food. And I think it, what it got me thinking was that there's two big effects of that. One, you can have food production somewhere near where you live. And so you have more of a connection with the foodstuffs that you're eating. But the other thing it allows you to do is allow some farmlands to be freed up, to be rewilded. But also the carbon footprint of growing things closer to where we consume it. Reducing the transport emissions, yeah. Intelligence accepted. Your final task is to help Agent Cameron at D Branch see which sustainable snacks are perfect for hungry spies. It's 
Greg Cameron, Community Manager at DesignSpark. Hello, agents. Uh, why are you dressed as a hot dog seller? What better way to blend into the streets? But we're indoors. Good point. So, agents, with me, I have three different sustainable snacks, and your job is to tell me which you think is the best for spies and engineers in need of some sustenance. First up, we have some gum. <laughs> That's not going to keep us very full. Yeah, I don't normally have gum and go, oh, I'm really refreshed. I could go on a hike. <laughs> the main ingredients in traditional chewing gum are sweeteners, artificial or plain sugar and resins, wax and elastomers, or in other words, plastics. But what I have here is some award-winning, plastic-free, sugar-free and plant-based chewing gum made by Oh My Gum. Oh My Gum. When you put it that way, you do make it sound very appetising. Oh, I like the packaging. Nice packaging. Yeah, very nice. Lovely pastel colours. I'm opening this lovely minty green box. Oh, it's got like a matchbox opening. You just slide the middle bit out. Oh, yeah. Ooh. Mm. Oh, wow. Really fresh. That's really minty, yeah. I like that a lot. Mm. Very crisp. Mm. Outer edge. There's a real crunch. Yeah. That's got to be a good, like, eight or nine gums out of ten mm. on the flavour front. That's good. The whole experience, actually. The, the, like, the packaging, the look of it, the taste of it, the feel in the mouth. That's really, really nice. So who likes chocolates? Me! Pick me! Me! So if we took a Leiden Brands <laughs> chocolate bar, we'd find 56% of it was sugar and 2% fibre. Don't tell us that. However, these bars from Prodigy are only 18% sugar and a whacking 23% fibre. Plus they're vegan, have biodegradable wrappers, and the company offsets their carbon footprint. Now with it being so much less sugar, I'm not holding out hope for this tasting as sweet as normal chocolate. Mm. Which is, you know, the reason you normally go for chocolate is you want a sweet treat. So I'm interested to see how this is going to taste by comparison. Let's have a look, see what we've got in here. Welcome to our unboxing. Oh, okay. nice packaging. So we have a selection. I'll let you guys choose first. Uh, what have we got? Hazelnut, salted caramel. You know what? The packaging looks like a Wonka bar. Oh, there's a chocolate orange one. Oh, I'll go for that one. I'm actually going for Thank the you. creamy coconut version. Let's dig in. Right. So we're all crunching at the same time. Ooh. Mmm. I'm sold. It's fully plant-based, and yet that is really creamy. That's really, really nice. Mine's so nice. Yeah, so you know I said that I was ready to be disappointed by how much sugar there was in this and how sweet it would be. I would not have guessed in the slightest that that was a third of the sugar of a typical chocolate bar. Mm. It's just as sweet. You do know what that means, though, don't you? It means you can have another two bars. Oh, yeah. I'm on board with that. And finally... We have a variety of low-carbon, high-protein biscuits with a very special and technically non-vegan ingredient from a company called Bugvita. Mm. Non-vegan. does that mean you're out? You're on your own. It means more for me. Any guesses to the magic ingredient? I think you guys have already sussed this. I've kind of looked at the label, so I cheated. But crickets, really? Yeah, those balls are really hard and big. I don't know how you're going to make food out of that. What are you talking about? We have a selection, so you have butterscotch. Ginger. I think I'm going to go for the chocolate chip. Chocolate chip. I'm watching you. and Shinny's, it's got a really thick, crunchy texture to it. Like, really deep, you know. They are really crunchy. You could dunk these forever. That They look like a dunker, yeah. But really crumbly. 
I'm not sure how I feel about this. Greg went straight in with like a, <laughs> you know, someone taking a bite out of a Jaffa cake. Like, <laughs> this is a replacement to the protein bars. Oh, so how much protein is in these? Per chip, 9.2 grams of protein. So that's half a protein shake. Like again, I am jealous. If I if I if I didn't know that there was insects in that, I would genuinely. You want You said one. that you are vegan ninety five percent of the time. Yeah. So you could. I could, but I'm going to choose not to. <laughs> the reason why it's important we explore insects as a food source is that insects are a great source of protein and vitamins and produce a thousand times less carbon per kilogram than cows. Mm. Surely that is going to sway you. I mean, the reason I am vegan is is for the carbon footprint reason rather than an ethical reason. Mm. How many biscuits out of ten are you going to give it, Shinny? I don't know. I think I need time to to sit with it. So I'm going to give this a biscuit rating of nine biscuits out of ten. Really? Ooh. It's got a crunch. I've got the ginger flavour. And I would willingly dunk this in my milk or my coffee any time of the day. Wow, nine out of ten. So out of all of these, which one would you recommend if we have to give these to hungry spies and engineers? I mean, the chocolate was off the charts good. For me, I definitely the chocolate, and specifically the, the orange and baobab chocolate, was game-changing. Warning. Commence system shutdown. Well, thank you so much for bringing us all these treats, Greg. Yeah, it feels like Christmas, Greg. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, I think that wraps up today's mission. Very nice. I see what you did there. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please do one of three nice things for us. That's right. We'd love you. We will love you. If you could leave a review, subscribe to the show, or even recommend us to a friend. And don't forget, you can start your very own responsible engineering journey by signing up to DesignSpark's free design resources at designspark.com. Until next time, I've been Agent Shinny Somara. I've been Agent Simon Clark. And this has been Mission Mission Responsible. Responsible. Mission Responsible was a Why Did the Chicken production for Design Spark. Huge thanks to our guests Brittany Sambol, India Langley, Jack Farmer, and Greg Cameron. The series producer was Simona Rata, the researcher was Chris Armstrong, and the executive producer was Dan Page. 